Let's bow our heads and join our hearts. Father, thank You for the greatness of this day. We have come together as Your children. We have seen You work in people's lives and have heard of their experiences of of how You have, have come into their life and blessed them and rescued them and lifted them up and encouraged them and sustained them, Father, in ways that are marvelous to our ears. You are great. We praise You. We wish, Father, for the, a greater capacity to, uh, of wonder in order for that wonder to overflow in our hearts and, and to spill into the words of praise and adoration for the greatness of Your being. You are holy and You are powerful and You are wise beyond our comprehension. You understand the infinite while we are captured in the finiteness of our own being. And yet, You reveal Yourself to us. And for this, we're so thankful. And thank You for this Word that that teaches our minds and instructs our our minds as to how You have, have worked with creation from the very beginning, from that very first day, day one. And we pray, Father, that as we read it, our eyes will see, our ears will hear in such a way that we're transformed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen may not have thought about it, but to me, one of the really curious things uh, about the Bible, one of the curious coincidences of the Bible, is that the Bible begins with a wedding, and the Bible ends with a wedding in Revelation chapter 19, where you have the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, in our church, we're, we're like any other church. We have people who are married, and we have people that, that are not married, but have, have not uh, you know, ruled it out as an option, and, and, and certainly... Uh, uh, many would, would desire it in the future. And so when we come to a text like Genesis chapter 2, which is uh, about creation, and it's, uh, it, it's helping us to build a theology, a, a way of understanding the world that we live in and how it relates to God and God to it, we have to ask ourselves a question, especially in light of the kinds of things that are happening in Genesis 2. At the end of Genesis 2, the question is this, What do we need to be successful in marriage desiring and in marriage doing? What do we need to be successful in in desiring marriage in the right way and doing marriage the right way? In other words, how do we do marriage successfully in the eyes of God? And in this text, I, I think there are three things that we can, at least three things that we can pull out. The first is, there is a pitfall for us to watch for. And then number two, a prize to strive for. And number three, a perspective to be thankful for. First, the pitfall. One of the things you see in most marriages, saw it last night as uh, Mr. Tomberlin brought Kirby down the aisle to dance. One of the things that you see in marriage, in a, in a wedding ceremony, is the father bringing the daughter down the aisle and presenting her to her husband-to-be. And we have this in Genesis 2, after God fashions the woman out of Adam's rib. Verse 22, the Lord God made the woman from the rib He had taken out of the man, and He what? Brought her. He brought her to the man. And Adam sees Eve for the very first time, not knowing that such a creature like Eve could even exist. And he sees Eve for the first time. And you know what he does? He explodes into art. (laughs) He explodes into art. He explodes into literature. It's a poem. It's the first 
poem in the history of the world. And that's why it's printed that way in the Bible. When you read it in the Hebrew, it is a poem. And Adam says, when he sees Eve, for the very first time, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's a great poem. He says, this is now. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. These Hebrew words, this is now, means in a sense, it carries the idea of this is what I've been thinking about and looking for all of my life. This is it. But what is it? Well, Adam, caught up in the moment, says to the woman the most beautiful thing that she has ever heard. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he thinks, oh brother, this guy is a work in progress. I mean, he really knows how to compliment a girl. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But that's a poetic way of saying in Hebrew, when I look at you, I see what I am. And here's the interesting thing to think about. Adam is in paradise, is he not? Adam is in paradise in a perfect relationship with God, and yet this is the way that Adam responds to Eve. He's in a perfect relationship with God. You know what God and Adam are doing in the cool of the evening? They're walking in the garden. Adam has this terrific job of naming all of the animals, and whatever he called it, that's what it was called. He is getting to discover all of these things that God has created in paradise. But when he sees the woman, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is the way that he responds to Eve. And yet in this response, I think, is a danger. The danger in every marriage is that the spouse will be expected to supply what only God can give. The danger in every marriage is that the spouse will be expected to supply what only God can give. There is something so wonderfully sweet and fulfilling about marriage that the temptation is to turn that spouse into an idol. And this is what I mean by that. You begin to look to that spouse for love, and you look for that, to that spouse for, for, for affirmation, and you look for respect from that spouse, and you look for meaning and all of these kinds of things. But to give you meaning and significance in the foundation in your life is to turn that spouse into something that spouse was never intended to be. In other words, you're looking to that spouse to save you. And as soon as you begin to think and to look to that spouse to give you the love and the foundation, the significance and the meaning for life, then it is just a hop, skip, and a jump from slipping you into idolatry. And the truth of the matter is this, that no spouse should bear the weight of those expectations. That no spouse should bear the weight of those expectations. You will crush your spouse, literally crush your spouse with those kinds of expectations. And on the flip side of that coin, if you receive some kind of criticism from your spouse or there are problems with your spouse or there are disappointments with your spouse or there's something that terrible that happens with your spouse, then it's you that's being crushed. Why? Because you're looking for that marriage to save you. You're looking for that marriage to give you the love and to give you the respect and to give you the foundation, the meaning, the significance, and the direction that only God is to supply you with. And when that happens, when you slip into that idolatry, you're never going to be able to handle the moments of mediocrity. And you can't tolerate the fantasy of a blissful, non-challenging, non-confrontational marriage not being the reality. And so you throw in the towel and you move on to the next idol. 
And so you wonder, well, is the answer not to love your spouse too much? Quite frankly, I don't know if you can love any human being too much. I, I love the way C.S. Lewis wrote a book, uh, one of his latter books, entitled The Four Loves, where he looks at the four Greek ways that, um, uh, that love is expressed in, in, in the Greek language. And, and, and all four of these are found in the Bible. And one of the things he writes about love between human beings, he says, I, it's impossible to love a human being too much. You may love him too much in proportion to the love of God, but it is the smallness of love for God in comparison to the greatness of love for the spouse that creates the inordinances. What does that mean? It means what is essential to a healthy marriage is a vibrant relationship of love with God. And the answer is not to demote love, but to promote the love of God in ways that you've never experienced it in order for that to spill over into the relationship with your spouse in proper ways. And unless you do that, unless God becomes very much the center and the focus and the core of all things in your relationship, unless you do that, you will not be able to handle the imperfections of marriage or spouse. And so here is Adam seeing Eve for the very first time. He breaks into art. He breaks into literature. He breaks into a poem. And in seeing Eve for the first time, there is a danger that all of the affections will be transferred to her. But at the same time, there's a prize. In verse 18, the Lord said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What does the, the words helper suitable mean? But again, if you look at the original language, the word helper is a very interesting word. It is the word azer, as in Ebenezer. It's also a word that is applied to God over and over in the Old Testament. It is when God rescues uh, His people. He comes as a help. He comes as a military force. The idea of azer carries the idea of coming to help, coming as reinforcements. The army is outnumbered. The, the, the army is about to be overrun and all of a sudden the reinforcements show up and there's relief and there's help and there's victory. And God uses that word, Azer, to refer to Eve as the one who is bringing a special and a certain kind of strength to Adam. So we have the word helper, but we also have the word suitable, which is actually in Hebrew two words, and it means like opposite. Like opposite. Now, how in the world can something be like an opposite? Which is what the words mean. Well, think of it this way. It's another way of saying something is complementary. It's, it's, it's like two pieces of a puzzle. A puzzle, these pieces of a puzzle do not fit together if they are identical. Two puzzle pieces fit together not because they are alike, but because they are rightly different. That's how they complement. And what God is doing is bringing to Adam and Eve's life a strength that is very different from their own personal strength. And this is one of the things that happens in this kind of a relationship. In marriage, God brings into your life a person of different gender whose, <coughs> whose qualities are different from yours. And the idea is this. One flesh. One flesh. Now, at, at, at one of the most basic meanings of one flesh, of course, there's the idea, the tone of sexuality here. But it's much more than that. When the Bible talks about 
God pouring His Spirit out on all flesh. He means more than bodies. He's talking about people. And so when, when the Bible, when Moses writes uh, through inspiration from God that it is about one flesh, what he means is you and not you coming together and becoming one. Now, Ellen and I this summer are going to celebrate 32 years of marriage. And Ellen is very much a woman. I am very much a man. And over the 32 years, there is a merging of our lives in such a way that I know what she's thinking and she knows what I'm thinking. She's a little bit quicker on that. She knows what I'm thinking sometimes before I know what to think. But at the same time, it's not just knowing that person and how they're going to think. Knowing that when, you you know... uh, uh, I might mention, you know, wearing a fuchsia tie with a lime green shirt and, you know, a polka dot jacket. I know what she's going to think about that. It's more than that. It's also, in coming, becoming one flesh, it's also learning to see things differently in a different angle. I see things differently because, than I did when we were first married because of the process of becoming one flesh. It's not just knowing, but it's also seeing from a different angle and understanding that. <coughs> One of the, the, the really interesting things that happened in the early years of our marriage is that we could not agree on what kind of furniture we should buy for the house. And so we, we ended up not buying anything at all. I mean, why spend money on something she's going to dislike and why spend money on something that I'm not going to like? And so for the first couple of years of our marriage, we just kind of had some, some stuff that I had while I was in the dorm, which was hideous and, and, and kind of revolting when you think about it. But... We wanted to make sure that we got something that we both like. And lo and behold, without even talking about it much, through the years of becoming one flesh and beginning to think and, and to know what the other person was thinking and seeing their taste, but also beginning to see things through their eyes, all of a sudden we walked into a Haverty's in Abilene, Texas, and looked at the same couch and said, that's the one. Now, that's a lame ex- example of what it means, but it, it, it talks about the process of what it means to become one. The problem, though, is that we live in this consumer culture. We live in a consumer culture where, you know, right now I want a product that satif- satisfies, I want a product that never disappoints, I want one that never breaks down, that never fights back, that never talks back to me, that never hurts me. And when it does, you know what I do with that phone or with that car or with that belt? I get rid of it, and I buy another one. And this is why when marriage is less than blissful and very challenging, we're ready to throw it on the trash heap. And Eve is brought into Adam's life in Genesis 2 to help him. And the same thing is said, the same thing is, is true in Ephesians chapter 5 when the husband is told to love his wife and to help her. To help her to become beautiful and radiant, and without blemish, and holy. Marriage brings into your life the possibility for self-improvement and not consumer gratification. And then the last thing is this perspective. In verse 18, God said, it's not good that man is alone. The more I think about that, the more I'm surprised at that. I mean, God has created paradise. He has created a a perfect, a perfect creation. 
He has created everything and has looked at it and says that it is tov or said, you know, that it's good or that it's very good. And then all of a sudden he sees the man who is alone and he says, this is not good. How do you explain it? I mean, it seems so inexplicable. How are things not very good in paradise? How is there loneliness in paradise? Well, one of the things that we know just from the very nature of the, the Trinity and the very nature of, of, of Genesis, the, the reading of Genesis, is that we're created to be in a relationship with God and with other human beings. That we're created to have a relationship with other human beings and to have a relationship with God. God is that ultimate relationship. And in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and those, those prophets in the latter end of the Old Testament... You have God as this groom and you have His people Israel who are the bride. And the language implies that as He is the groom and we are the, the, the people of Israel are the bride, that He's given His heart to them. I mean, no groom asks a bride to marry Him unless He's given His heart to her. And as an aside, that's why Israel's unfaithfulness is so heartbreaking to God. And that's why when we give our heart to a job or we give our heart to money or to a hobby, we're unfaithful to God. And in essence, when we do that and we allow something else to come in and, and to, to displace God in our heart, we become the spouse from hell. But then we go to John 1. And we see in John 1 that Jesus... God the Son becomes flesh and He comes into His own. He comes into His very own. And the reason is to give us back. And we didn't just spurn Him. We didn't just we didn't just spurn Him but nailed Him to a cross. And when Jesus is on that cross lifted up high Jesus can literally see what it means to get us back. And He stays. And He stays. That is ultimate love. To see us as we truly are and to still love us for our sake and not for His. That original marriage that takes place back in Genesis chapter 2. That original marriage was to fill the earth with the children of God. But it failed. The husband in that marriage failed to step in and to help his wife when she needed him. But at the end of time, there's going to be another wedding, a wedding supper of the Lamb, and it is about the whole world once again, being filled with children who are filled with the knowledge and the will of God. And this time, it does succeed. Because the second Adam, Jesus of Nazareth, will not let His bride down. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Maybe you've been struggling with 
uh, your faithfulness to God and maybe you've been struggling with your relationship to Him and you're beginning to see that there are some areas in your life where you have allowed the idols to slip in. And maybe what you would like more than anything else tonight is encouragement and the prayers of the church and the counsel of your shepherds to help get you back on track where God is at the very core of your relationship because you know that He loves you not for His sake, but for your sake. And what you want more than anything else tonight is to love Him for His sake. If that describes you, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.